Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening to you wherever you are at whatever time you're listening to this. You're welcome to another lovely, interesting episode of Small Talk with Kutu. I am your host Kutu and I myself, I am in good health and uh, just generally having a lovely weekend. It's a bright and sunny day here in Abuja, Nigeria's capital. Looks like there might or might not be scattered thunderstorms according to the Google weather report. But overall, it's a bright and sunny day and it's just good overall. I hope this finds you well, finds you and your loved ones well. I hope you're having the best of times. If not, I hope that goodwill arrives for you in people and places and in unexpected places than you were hoping for. I send you all my love and all my um, thoughts and prayers is what they say, but I really do. I really do send you thoughts and prayers and I hope that it gets better for you soon, whatever the situation is. Uh, Thank you once again for joining me on this podcast. I never take it for granted that you're taking time out of your busy schedule to just sit and talk if this is your first time listening to small talk generally what we do here is generally um small talk you know just like a casual conversation between friends even though it is more of a monologue but i call it a conversation because you respond with your thoughts and maybe you're driving maybe you're cleaning your house you're taking care of your children you're going for a walk whatever it is that you're doing i hope you find this a very jolly conversation in which is thought-provoking because we discuss global issues here on a microeconomic scale and also macroeconomic more economy because economy always um, determines and affects our lives policy issues social issues but things that actually matter but we do it in a small talk form you know without all the lingo and all the jargon just easy to understand and 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 then follow um i'm just going to take a quick short break and i'll be back um also we're doing this new thing in which there is a fine quote in which i found for the week and i'd like to share with you so i'll do a quick break and i'll return so don't go anywhere this promises to be fun again welcome to small talk with kutu this episode we're talking this is part two of how to spend 500 billion dollars we did part one last week so part one was about um, relearning if you missed that i would ask that you take time off to listen to that today we're talking about part two how to spend 500 billion dollars uh, and we're talking about people and planet promises to be interesting and thought-provoking and a little bit weird uh, well that's how we do here so you stick around please and i'll be back shortly Welcome back. Thank you for sticking around. This is Small Talk with Kutu. If you're just joining us, I'm your host Kutu and uh, we're just going to jump into it right away. Today we are talking about part two on how to spend $500 billion. Thank you for all of you that listened to part one. Thank you for all your feedback on the podcast uh, and other social media platforms. Um, 
most of the feedback I got was, okay, where am I going to get $500 billion from? And do you have $500 billion, Kutu, that you're not using? Like, is this, what's this coming from? Do you have money hidden, squirreled away somewhere we need to spend? And you're telling us how to spend it. Well, I would say you never know what you have. So maybe you do have $500 billion, but you don't know. Maybe listening to this podcast will make you say, oh, look, I have $500 billion somewhere that I'm not using. Maybe I'll just be able to sit down with Kutu and we can uh, decide how to divide the national cake, as we say um, in Nigeria. So um, I in the intro, I talked about um, sharing a quote that I find interesting. Like, I want to start doing that now. And um, here it is. I saw this on the internet this week. I'm sure you have before. Um, Before you marry a person, this quote says, you should first make them use a computer with slow internet to see who they really are. Um, Given that those who know me know that um, I might fail this test, this, this kind of, this is a quote that I find very funny this week. I would say the past few months, internet has been so annoyingly slow that I kind of think this this meme was um, aimed at me. But it is a funny one, and I think, um, yeah, not a thing. Not a, if it, this was a test, I I I would feel it. So, <laughs> so that's the quote for today. Make someone use slow internet to show who they really are. Um, So we're just going to go ahead now and get right into it. Today we're going to be talking about part two, like I said, and we're going to be focusing on private private sector spending. Last week we talked about just relearning how to do things, how we're relearning sleep, how we're relearning play, how we're relearning how to use the kitchen and how we're relearning, you know, different aspects of our lives and how we might spend on different technologies. Today, we're just going to focus solely on private sector spending. So private sector spending is specifically what I call legacy spending. Legacy spending is the generosity, the philanthropy and capital investments that you make with the purpose of creating a legacy for yourself. So yes, you're generous, but with an aim. You are investing in social issues, but for a reason. You're philanthropic, but with a catch. You're not generous because you expect divine reward. That's all fine and good, but that's not why you're doing it. You're not a philanthropist for the sake of just doing so. You're not participating in social expenditure because you feel like it. You have an aim, an objective, a goal, and that goal is simply legacy. See, I know this is nothing new. See, companies invest in philanthropic activities all the time. Some do it to get a tax break. Others invest in CSR to polish up their image, turn public opinion in their favor. Politicians could be nice with cash because they want your votes. A religious leader may be generous, say he can obtain and retain a small army of defenders when he needs them. So yeah, right, this is nothing new. But what I'm talking about is more than that. This is about your legacy. Legacy from the viewpoint of mortality. I'll explain. Mortality is a true bane of human existence. One day you're strong, you're healthy, you're full of ideas. But like tall ideas that you have, you know, you have interplanetary ideas, you have earth-shattering ideas. 
But in your moments of sobriety, you know that there's a time limit on everything. 90 years, 120 years if you're lucky and take better care of yourself. But eventually, the earth is going to spin one day and your generation is not going to be here. Sure, you've worked hard, you're successful, you have your wealth, you have a loving family, you've had lots of joy and fun under the sun. But mortality, mortality, she comes to collect. At the end of a long life, prosperous or otherwise, mortality, to quote Shakespeare, can be a heartless wench. If we would, we'd live forever, but we can't. So to ensure longevity, mankind, what we do is we create art, we write books, we invest long-term, we have children, we win elections, we start a war, we strive for fame, and in doing this, we are crafting our afterlives while we live. We have streets, universities, towns, villages named after us. We're, we're well aware that the, the time waits for no one and we have to win. We have to win in this gripping struggle that we have with the clock. In all kinds of ways, for the rich and for the poor, we strive in all kinds of ways to keep our memories alive. Our names are drilled into rocks, caves, and even cattle. Yep, you've ever seen the livestock with the owner's name on it? I have. So for the extremely wealthy, your money is the key to creating a legacy that others do not have. You have been blessed with the more opportunities than others have. You have been blessed with the opportunity to leave your mark on a large and grand scale. So I'm talking about legacy that outlives you, that even your grandchildren cannot taint. Say you have a billion dollars and you leave a robust will to your heirs. How sure are you that they will multiply your wealth when you're gone? Wealth that you spent your blood, your sweat, and your tears, and then some to build and to amass. Yeah, sure, your attorney can be the best. You can leave strict instructions with said attorney. But remember that wills can be overruled. They can declare you incompetent and void the terms of your will. Do all you must. But, Baba, let me tell you, once you're out of sight, you run the risk of being out of mind. So what is to be done? You surely can't leave your wealth with the government that will tax you to death. Not that, look, not that you shouldn't pay your taxes. I pay my taxes, but let me tell you, it's not my favorite activity. No one likes being taxed. So when we go on and on about taxing the rich, which is well and fine for winning elections and even drawing up revenue for the government, we should know that it only makes people all the more prone to try and hide their wealth. Even the poor do not like paying taxes. Let's not get it twisted. The only difference is that the rich can seek out more loopholes to evade paying taxes. So if all else fails, we have tax havens. That's countries are willing to help you. <laughs> They'll tell you, if your country is unfriendly, bring your money. We'll hide it for you. Not only does this impoverish the home country, it makes the tax haven unnecessarily expensive to live in. Above all, it grossly affects the amount of wealth that we have available as a global community to solve problems that affect us all. So how then do you spend your billions? How do you ensure invincibility? How can you live forever? Money, after all, answers all things, including immortality. No, we're not talking about digital sepulchers just yet. We'll leave that for the podcast on artificial intelligence. For now, we are focused on financing. You have two choices, really. 
You can sink your money in low-yielding bonds, or you can pour your wealth into a billion human lives and speak through a billion voices. This is more than fame and power. This is spending for the future, spending for people and planet. Let me be more practical. Say you have five friends, all of you are billionaires. You're all hiding your money away, your wealth in different European and Oceania tax havens. You're hiding out from your government, the press, from litigious people who have wet dreams of suing you as their version of winning the lottery. You have what Nigerians will be pleased to call your village people. That's meaning that you feel like you're being witch-hunted, literally and figuratively. It sucks, honestly. You're rich, but you're not free. You're the evil villain in every poor person's story. The middle class hates your guts. The poor fawn over you, but will throttle you to death in the village square if they could. Your existence seems to revolve around little else than solely to guard and protect this money. Every day there's a new legislation against you. You burn every bridge then. You align with political interests that are truly disgusting and beneath your moral code. All to make sure that every election circle... Every election cycle, the leaders that emerge are not doe-eyed, tax-the-rich-to-death evangelists. It is exhausting, isn't it, this life you're living? You're not having fun. And above all, your kids, you worry about them, their safety. They're not a prime, they're a prime kidnapping target. Right. And everyone remembers the Getty kidnapping debacle. You are not a Getty. Right, you are going to pay all your money if one hair of your child's head is harmed. And the bad guys know this. Terrorists know this. Stalkers know this. Heck, even the cat, the family cat, Mickey, knows this. The only person who doesn't seem to get it is the child, the child in danger. Drinking, partying, taking addictive substances, hanging out with the wrong crowd, or just his or her sheer lack of ambition. Like, the whole thing reeks. And your nose is full of the stench. Solomon, my favorite Bible character, he sums it up perfectly. And I'm paraphrasing him now. He says, what's the use of all this hard work if a fool will inherit it after me? Solomon was right to be concerned. See, after his death, his son squirreled away what was left of his gold and glory. Before long, Nebuchadnezzar took over the city and plundered the gold. The world's richest man that ever lived lost it all before two generations were over. So how do you ensure that you are not Solomon? The answer is simple. Speak with a billion voices. Affect a billion lives. How? Form a corporation with other persons of equally deep pockets. Set someone over it who sees the world as, sees the world as you do. Then spend on social issues that leapfrog the present into the future in two key ways. One, seek out small businesses that are solving problems, existential problems, and fund them. When I mean existential problems, I mean existential problems. This is bigger than investing in apps. I'm sorry, but investing in the next app is junior level executive move. Okay, okay, now we have an app. Now I can find my keys, and I know where my dog left his chew toy. And then? Oh, there's this app. 
and it calculates how many calories you can get from eating the meal that you are yet to eat. Okay, that's all fine and good. Look, I'm not against apps. Without apps, you and I would not be communicating right now. Apps makes life easier, solves everyday problems. They're handy and a great business model for some of the best companies in the world to do some of the biggest ones. My thing is, there are bigger threats, looming threats to human existence. Picture someone painting a house while the roof is on fire. That's what I mean. The big problems of our days, war, energy crisis, climate change, our planet in peril, they require urgent action. This is a fire on the roof that we need to put out. If there's no planet, there are no countries. If there's war, there's fragility in one country, it spreads to its neighbors and to its trade partners. Strong economies demand peace and stability. You cannot have a house, nor a cat, nor a dog to buy a tutor for, to use an app when you are fighting for survival. Food, food shortages were already an issue before the Russian-Ukraine war began. Today, the outlook for the global energy and food economy is worrisome. In a world that has yet to recover from the havoc that the pandemic wrecked on economies, the war in Eastern Europe has now compounded the issue. Financial institutions like the World Bank, IMF, the WTO are greatly concerned. Energy use is destroying the planet, at least the way we're using it currently. Should we talk about biodiversity? Two-thirds of wildlife have become extinct in the last 50 years alone, according to the Living Planet Report of 2020. 1.6 billion kids are out of school due to the pandemic, and that represents a significant loss in literacy and education. Internet penetration and mobile connectivity needs to be at 100% globally. Research shows that just 10% increase in mobile connectivity increases per capita GDP by 1.3%. Let's talk about fintech. Women form a significant portion of the world's unbanked population. And recent IMF data reveals that in emerging economies, women are better entrepreneurs, but they have less access to fintech solutions than men. Youth restiveness threatens social stability. Water a prime natural resource, which arguably is the only reason why there's life on this planet at all, is not being given its due place. Water which flows in curved lines, for have you ever seen a straight river? Now, what we do is we make water arrive in our homes in straight pipes, destroying the natural healing essence of the liquid. And this is the water that we bathe in, we drink, we cook with, we wash our clothes in. See, we're going to need to repipe the world with squiggly pipes that mimic the stream's natural movement. The stream's natural movement. And that's a paradigm shift in building materials and construction and simultaneously a great business opportunity. Let's talk about food. I mean agriculture. Freshwater fish has moved from streams into our backyards. Because now aquatic life is being groomed in ponds with feed that has been quickened for growth. Fish that normally takes years to mature become ripe for eating in weeks. Animals that need three years to mature ripen for the slaughter in three months. We eat those animals and our cells react to this unnatural timeline of ripening and they themselves, ourselves, they pick up the relay button and begin to accelerate in growth. The result? 
We have puberty as early as six years in children. We have leukemia and high blood pressure in infants. Brains that ref refuse to acknowledge body parts and gender. Our fight against time using bioengineering is literally killing the planet. We've created plants that poison bees. <laughs> when bees dip into the nectar of those plants, they stumble away, fly in stunned zigzag patterns and die. If bees die, fruit trees dry, die. If, fruit tre if trees are dying, birds have no homes. Without birds and bees, the vegetative ecosystem is in peril. The rich natural fertilizer that birds provide, gone. The trees reduce in diversity. Without diversity, we won't have forests. Without forests, most animals are doomed to extinction. We have ferns, moss, fungi, all thrive and creep on the forest floor. But now without trees and forests, none of that is possible. Without trees and forests, the air remains unpurified, polluted, and we get sick because we are the prime partakers of purified air. Animals and their droppings are central to the health of large grasslands. Without them, these grasslands are laid bare due to overgrazing, deforestation, but mostly through the use of weapons-grade fertilizer. So we trap animals, herbivores, in cages as we breed them for meat. We won't allow them to live out the span of their lives. They roam the earth as they should. No, we won't allow that because they are meant to roam the earth so that their manure can fertilize the soil of the grasslands. We don't allow that movement. So now their, heels, their hooves are not digging gently into the topsoil to aerate it as nature intended. Consequently, when the rains arrive, the bare grassland soil is affected by erosion and surface runoff. The fertilizers run into the ocean. You know, the weapons-grade fertilizer that we have now created because we won't allow the natural organic ones. These run into the oceans. The sea animals are affected. We eat those sea creatures. The fertilizer makes its way into our bloodstream. Before long, tumor appears in our bodies, our personalities, and our lives. Meanwhile, the earth is dead. There is no fungi, no nematodes. Is it fungi or fungi? No fungi, no nematodes, bacteria, zero, nothing. As a result, CO2 escapes, nitrogen isn't fixed, and we have turned nature on its head. Soil stewardship is a thing that needs serious consideration because that is how to control CO2 emissions. See, it's always funny how we speak of CO2 as a greenhouse gas, as if it were the bad guy. The greenhouse gas warming up our planet, etc., etc. CO2 is not the evil gas that's driving up the Earth's atmosphere. CO2 emissions is simply the gas in the wrong place. The solution then to climate change is, as they say in real estate, location, location, location. CO2 that is meant to be locked in trees, in the oceans, and in the earth has been let loose into the atmosphere through activities like burning fossil fuels, deforestation, overgrazing, and other such poor environmental hygiene. Our goal then, where to spend this money, is to create large carbon sinks to drown the carbon dioxide, take it from the atmosphere, and put it back where it belongs. 
the climate change issue is a CO2 displacement issue. If you restore carbon sinks to their natural healthy state, you scarcely need to do much else. The carbon sinks themselves will take it from there. They act effortlessly to restore the carbon dioxide to its rightful place. Again, what are these three main carbon sinks? One, oceans or water bodies, which we know make up 71% of the planet. Number two, the earth herself, the soil. And three, trees or green vegetation. We restore this tree and they will by themselves drain the CO2 from the atmosphere. Don't forget, no one benefits more from CO2 restoration than human beings. Plants taking the CO2, retain the carbon and give off purified oxygen. The O2 in the CO2 is us. We use that. Plants, they make food. They trap the sun's energy through photosynthesis. They feed microbes at their roots. They provide food for animals and overall restore the earth's biobalance. So this is what to spend the billions on, your billions on. Form your legacy corporation, seek out companies and organizations that do true work in these areas and fund them. Don't just give money to random NGOs. Be sure that the solution you are funding are sustainable, profitable, and not destructive to people and planet. Be the person who was instrumental and pivotal in the genius solution that solved climate change. Sure, these are problems that require collective and concerted effort of public and private parties. Most of these need the approval and cooperation of governments involved. As oceans and the forests, they lie in the jurisdiction of these governments, outside the sphere of the individual, no matter how rich. Well, yes and no. See, countries are not having the time of their lives at the moment which creates an opening for which a private partnership might be able to come in. Pandemic-induced inflation have battered emerging economies more than some nations can handle. There's been a setback of the gains that global financial institutions have made in the fight against poverty over the years. Debt ceilings are raised, loans are in danger of default, capital markets holding on for dear life as the bubble is growing so big it's ready to burst any moment. Your investments may be secure for now, but let's all remember, there is no wealth so secure that it can survive infrastructural poverty. So while this isn't quite good news, this global outlook, it creates the perfect scenario for public-private partnerships, which is where you come in. Now, there's a second key area in which you can engage in legacy spending. The corporation can instead be a fund a fund to buy up debt of nations about to default on their loans. These nations owe private investors more money than their budgets can sustain. For some countries, more than half of their annual budget is earmarked for debt servicing, paying back loans, and loan interests. Now, instead of buying up national debt for pennies on the dollar and then return to collect payment by forcing the countries to go on their knees, metaphorically speaking, budget-wise, the following, I think, is a better option. The fund that you set up buys up the debt of nations in danger of default. The debtor nation then repays the loan, not in cash, but in macroeconomic indicators. Here's what I mean. 
Countries that run the risk of loan default usually are regarded as a high-risk investment by private investors, right? So no self-respecting investor would touch them with a 10-foot pole. This is where you come in. And, you know, the investors themselves, they may be right because these countries, amongst other place, other things, is that they are usually like dangerous and high-risk places to invest and you don't want to lose your money. This is because there might be high employment leading to restive youth activity and crime. There might be an ecosystem there destroyed in the bid to extract energy. There might be zero to minimal women's rights and poor infant and maternal health. Just read different reasons why this country is not good for business. Now, if a country is willing to cap its debt and not raise the debt ceiling for a period of time, let the fund that you set up buy up this debt on the balance sheet of investors and other financial institutions. Then let's de denominate that debt in points. That is, it'll be written off or reduced if some specific actions are taken by the debtor nation. For instance, 5% of the debt, I'm just saying, just, this is just an instance, right? 5% of the debt can be written off if 5% of your youth are employed in state-owned farms, for instance. 2.5% of the debt can be reduced if, say, 100 primary healthcare centers are built in rural areas. 11% further can be reduced if children aged 0 to 18 are back in school. Another debt reduction by 8.9% if defunct or former forests are restored. Half of the debt can be cancelled if civil conflict is brought to an end. If in that period of time, say five years, which is usually political tenure in most countries, if a serious government were to set its dock in a row and not be allowed to borrow any more money, use the portion of its budget that it used to be set aside to pay back loans, to use it now to build its own infrastructure, using its own labor, local, local labor force. See, a few things will happen. The youth will be employed in the building of the infrastructure, which in turn lowers crime and sexual assault of women. Building healthcare centers for women will improve maternal health, restored forests will clean up the air, improved agriculture will now make more food to be grown lo locally to sustain the local population. Once a country's people are employed, the women's health improved, children are in school, and some portion of nature is being restored, a country's profile on the international scene rises. Investors are then drawn like moth to a flame. More demand for their bond leads to a jump in prices. Since the bond of this country is on the balance sheet of this fund, the bonds purchased for pennies on the dollar will now appreciate by as much as 12%. The fund then has helped the country pay off its debt, made it reprioritize its people's well-being, and helped this country become a worthwhile investment destination for investors. With a boost in FDI, there will be less need to borrow more unsustainable debt. Macroeconomic indicators, then, of thriving countries have much to do with a healthy and balanced ecosystem. So, forest restoration investments, ocean cleanups, greener and more humane animal husbandry, this, this these are not just like feel-good altruistic endeavors, but actual opportunities to make lasting profit. But much more to engrave your legacy in gold that cannot be looted nor plundered, in glory that endures as long as there's a human tongue to tell the tale. I've heard conspiracy theories that point to vested interests, 
to a group of persons who want the temperature of the earth to rise so that giant energy-rich continent of Antarctica, so that the giant energy-rich continent of Antarctica can melt and access to the oil fields beneath can be revealed. Let's say for one moment that this is true. The reason we're willing to risk the melting of the ice caps and submerge large swaths of cities to get energy is because we do not see where true energy lies. And that's topic for another broad podcast. See, this podcast is already in danger of violating Shakespeare's maxim of brevity. But the rule of thumb is this. Whether for the cooperation or for the fund, the rule of thumb is biomimicry, where we mimic nature. We only do things that nature does. If nature doesn't do it, we do not do it. You cannot be smarter than a force that has been here for billions of years, that has outlived every human civilization, every evolution. You are not smarter than nature. Know that and know peace. As Nigerians would say, most times, the best principle of biomimicry is to get out of nature's way. What happened when we were shut in during the pandemic? Rivers began to clear up, didn't they? Animal life thrived. Flora, fauna, all flourished. We are in the way, it seems. So we either conform or comply. We either conform and comply with nature's way or get out of her way. It's like the river analogy. You either get out of the river's way or redirect her. Either way, nature will triumph in the long run. So this cooperation that I've been talking about, it has to thrive and to succeed. It has to give science its place. Science that is bold enough to be different, bold enough to admit when it's wrong. Not that nonsense thing that, you know, you find in scientific quarters sometimes about mocking a fellow scientist on a new um, cutting-edge technology, then turning around centuries later to be like, eh, oh, they were right. No. Not one day, you're calling meditation and mindfulness mindfulness woo-woo. And then two decades later, what do we see? You're inviting gurus to give talks on the same subject at Fortune 500 companies. Not the sign that stomps on cutting-edge technology just because it didn't make it. You know, technology like Tesla's work on free energy or Victor Schauberger's work on vortex technologies. You know, then later you now turn around and repatent it under different names. We need science that is bold enough to admit when it's wrong and recalibrate, and that quickly. Science that is humble enough to follow nature's way, however rudimentary they are, because they are more superior to our noisy, noisy technology. Nature's way, however rudimentary, it pales in our technology pales in comparison to her stunning simplicity and elegant intelligence. I mean, look at the cheetah. We model our cars after how fast it can go from zero to 100. We get that from nature. Watch a documentary, you know, on mushrooms or fungi, and you'll be amazed for days on end at the intelligence that nature provides without effort, without noise. In biomimicry, in your legacy spending, we put people and planet first. We make sure the people are well. They will build their own country. They will build their own economy. They will elect their own kind leaders. They'll look after each other. Let them just be taken care of. 
let their well-being be put first. Adam Smith talks, Adam Smith, you know, the father of economics, he talks about the invisible hand of free enterprise. That is, a government should interfere as little as possible, if not never, in the affairs of the free market. Let the market forces of demand and supply of labor and wages run their course. They will determine, determine. I had, I had a, um, a physics teacher who used to say determine. They will determine the economic wealth of a nation or a country. Well, that's all fine and good. However, an economy is only as good as its citizens. A sick and poor populace will create a distortion in the invisible hand theory. I submit to you that the true invisible hand, the true invisible hand is a thriving populace, a healthy populace, first in mind, then in body, living in a healthy, natural environment. That is the true invisible hand that will build any economy. To rest solely as we do on Smith's invisible hand theory means that, to use a Nigerian expression, we are learning work that we are apprentices, we're amateurs, we know nothing, John Snow. <laughs> so, yes, the invisible hand, yes, the free market economy, but the free market economy of healthy, wealthy, healthy in mind, in body, and in environment, of healthy individuals, of people whose well-being we have put first. Let the grass be green, the animals will come, is the analogy. So the summary of today's talk, of today's podcast is this, outlive yourself. As a private individual with deep pockets, you have a unique ability to do what few can do, solve global problems. Wealth is not a crime that you have to hide. It is a grand and solemn responsibility you have to use it to do good and you, in return you gain for yourself posterity. You get to live a thousand years. Instead of willing your wealth to one heir or two who may or may not waste it, you get to live on through thousands, millions, billions of heirs. You live on in global literature, in folklore, in classrooms. You are taught as a subject in languages you don't even speak, nor languages that have not in languages that hasn't they have not even been invented. You are spoken of and remembered fondly by generations yet unborn. And if the push to make humanity an interplanetary species is successful, your name will transcend Earth and live on other planets. You will indeed go where no man has gone before. Let it be said of you, she or he saved the Earth from the brink of destruction. Use your wealth to solve actual problems ones that involve billions of people and you will truly live forever. That's legacy spending. So once again, form your cooperation with deep-pocketed colleagues. Set over it a visionary CEO with a heart for people and invest in goodwill. Of people and planet, we do need to care. You will outshine your peers by doing so. And those governments who are chasing you all over the place to tax you, they will give you all the tax breaks you need. Because remember, this is still philanthropy. You're only doing it differently. You're doing it with an aim, with an objective. You're doing it to overcome mortality, 
to achieve immortality, to ensure a legacy that nobody can squirrel away. Ni attorney, ni heirs, ni governments. You ensure how you live, how you are remembered, and how you make do with the wealth that you are entrusted in. So you're not a billionaire. You can still do something. You can still spend when you are giving, when you are being generous to people. Do it with the mind that people need to live better because you have lived, because they know you. So you touch one life. It's the equivalent of the flapping of the wings of a butterfly that causes an earthquake on the other side of the world. We have that one teacher that encouraged us. We have that one relative that stood up to a bully. We have that one colleague that encouraged us while we were crying or while we were discouraged on a project. That's also legacy spending. You're spending your time, your emotions, you're listening to people, you're encouraging them. You might not have the $500 billion on your balance sheet. You might not be able to form a fund with deep-pocketed colleagues but always remember that everybody that you come across in one way or the other is a piece of the divine that you can leave an eternal mark on. Let it be a mark of kindness. Let it be a mark of good. Let it be a mark of ensuring that they're 1% better because they met you. Let them remember you forever because that's your legacy as well. Okay then, we've come to the end of this podcast. I told you it'd be weird, (laughs) but that's how we do. Um, So remember to be kind. Remember to keep your head up. I am going to wish you a lovely week ahead. I hope that you slay all the dragons. I hope that you stand up to all your bullies. I hope that you stop being a bully, if you are. (laughs) And I hope that help shows up for you in people and places that you never dreamed of. So I send you goodwill. Send your family hugs and may you be protected as you go and as you come. So this is a a peace out, like my colleague at work would say. This is a peace out from me to you. This is Toodles and um, I hope you have great fun this week. Bye.